0: Welcome to the OC24 podcast from the Global Initiative Against Transnational Organised Crime. In this series, we'll bring you 12 of the best talks from this year's 24-hour conference on global organised crime. This episode is called Organised Crime in the UK.
1: My name is Dr. Filia Alam. I am Professor at the University of Bath in um, Comparative um, Organised Crime and Corruption. And it is my pleasure to welcome you to this um, Roundtable on Organised Crime in the UK and it's my pleasure to invite you to this discussion um, around organised crime in the UK We're very lucky to have very three very different speakers but three speakers who are going to bring I think some interesting knowledge and ideas and debates to the table around organised crime in the UK I'll um, just um, but what I'm going to do is I'm going to ask them to present themselves and then we will start having a discussion Before I do that I just want to note that the idea behind this roundtable was the Um, The idea very much that we talk about organised crime, um, we talk about transnational organised crime, we talk about global organised crime, and we always seem to suggest that organised crime doesn't exist in the UK, or that the type of organised crime that we see in films doesn't exist in the UK. And so this roundtable is an opportunity for us to reflect about what kind of organised crime does exist in the UK, what it looks like, and how it challenges our societies, our society in general, but also different levels of the economy and sectors of society if you want so this is a, a trying to sort of self-meditate and self-reflect with three speakers based in the UK about what organized crime looks like how it manifests itself and how we must also I think be aware of, it, of, it, of its existence and be aware that it's not someone else's problem or it, it doesn't exist here and uh, if we don't Acknowledge it, then we're not really going to deal with it. And I think that's one of the things that this roundtable hopefully will uh, underline that the importance of also looking at home rather than just looking abroad and someone else's problem. So, with that in mind, or having said that, I will now uh, ask Stan Gilmore if he can just briefly present himself. Then I will ask uh, Dr. Ella Cobin if she can, Cobin if she can um, present herself, and then Francesco Garcias so if they can just briefly give us an overview who, of who they are. After that, uh, Stan will then uh, do a, just a simple presentation around um, what he thinks organized crime looks like in the UK or how he comes across it. And that is the main theme of the first uh, intervention that each person will make. Thank you.
2: Thank you. Yeah. I'm Stan Gilmore. I'm the director of the Thames Valley Violence Reduction Unit. Uh, we are a multi-agency organization. Uh, focused on what has become known as a public health approach to prevention, so multi-agency approach to prevention. Um, Today I'm going to speak to you about uh, how we focus on prevention in three different domains. Uh, I won't go into that yet, but um, that will be my focus. Thanks.
3: Thank you. Ella? Hi, I'm I'm Ella Cobain. I'm an Associate Professor at UCL in the Department of Security and Crime Science, and my work focuses primarily on human trafficking, various forms of labour exploitation and child
1: sexual exploitation. Thanks. Thank you very much Ella. Francisco?
0: Hi there, I'm Francisco Garcia. I'm a freelance uh, writer and journalist with publications like The Guardian, Vice, New Statesman, Rolling Stone, and um, many others. I mainly write about what I guess you could broadly term as crime and society. I also, my first book was published last year by HarperCollins. Um, it was a study of the missing persons crisis in the UK, which led me on to various aspects of organized crime that involved with that very thorny and complicated topic. Thank you very much.
1: Thank you, Francisco. Um, so Stan, we're going to go in the following order. Uh, I thought it would be best if we started with a practitioner's voice, um, whether that's a good or bad idea, I don't know, but um, give the floor to uh, Stan as the practitioner, then have the academic Ella and then have the kind of representative of civil society, if you want, as Francesco, um, just giving us a brief overview of, of how they see organized crime in the UK and then we'll take it from there. Thank you very much.
2: Thanks, Philly. Um The public health approach um, to prevention uh, takes a a view that late prevention, uh, also known as tertiary prevention, is uh, far too um, expensive on society as well as on the public purse. Uh, And earlier prevention is much more beneficial uh, in individual, in in family, in community, neighbourhood and social terms. So Uh, At the Violence Reduction Unit, we focus on uh, universal or primary early prevention, targeted or secondary prevention, and then specialist or tertiary prevention. Uh, And this slide, apologies, it is very busy, but this slide uh, lays out our approach um, so that we manage to capture as far as we can uh, those domains across a life course, but also across intercept points with the with the system. Um, so if I just explain very briefly what we're looking at here, um, the main boxes in the center, intercept zero uh, is where community services are providing the support they need to prevent people from being drawn into uh, vulnerability. Um, and our approach to vulnerability is very much that it's a systemic issue that people are not inherently vulnerable provided they have access to the services and support they need to keep themselves or their families safe. And really it's only at the point of crisis where, for example, the police may get involved um, and the first role of the police um, is to uh, preserve life and protect individuals. So they should be thinking about how they can uh, refer people back into community support rather than drawing them into criminalization, which we know uh, can be a bad thing. So the focus of the violence reduction unit is to look to see how we can support our communities uh, to build resilience uh, with community organisations and to build support from public services that don't undermine uh, that resilience building. Um, and to make sure that when people come into contact with services that they're needs are properly identified and addressed um, so that they can be supported back in the community. Now, we take this approach because we are looking very much at risk and protective factors. Uh, There's a a very recent study, a Campbell uh, collaboration, systematic review on risk factors for um, people being drawn into organised crime. And those risk factors are pretty much uh, the same. The framing may be different, the syntax may be different, but the risk factors are pretty much the same as many of the risk factors we see across uh, criminology in in terms of why people get drawn into and involved in crime. Uh, They are, as always, very gendered. uh, With organised crime, we are all too often only talking about the boys and men. Um, And one of the approaches that we're taking in the VIE, the Violence Reduction Unit, is to try and engender the conversation so that we're actually picking out risk factors that are problematic for girls and women, and not just those that are are worrisome for boys and men. So risk factors uh, for involvement in organised crime, or crime more generally, uh, tend to be um, things like early indications of criminality. Uh, early indications of violence, um, a a disorganised, disrupted um, family, um, uh, support from friends, peers and family to become involved in crime or organised crime in this case. Um, So very kind of common set of risk factors. And the approaches we take are to try and build resilience against those issues at a very early stage, as early as we can, And the pink boxes on the top uh, are kind of examples of specific evidence-based interventions to undermine those risk factors and and provide protective factors um, for uh, for individuals. Now, as we run through the intercepts, we get deeper into the criminal justice system and and later on in a life course uh, where we have to become much more specialist and and much more costly in the way that we deal with uh, with individuals. But we always take a multi-agency approach to this, always looking at diversion, always looking at community resilience to build support for people uh, and to address uh, individual needs uh, as people age through the system uh, and make sure that we are putting a system together to provide the best possible outcome for those involved. I'm very happy to talk about that much more as we go through the conversation, but I think for now that's enough from me. Thanks very much.
1: Thank you, Stan. Um, Ella, would you like to give your overview of how you come into contact or or, or see or uh, engage with what looks like organised crime in the UK? Yes, so um,
3: like I said, the vast majority of my work has focused on specific areas around trafficking and labour abuse and child sexual exploitation so i can't pretend and i don't want to talk about organized crime in general um it may well be that some of the points i raise do resonate with other forms of organized crime and it would be interesting to hear the other participants and you know people who are here uh listening um what what your thoughts are on that um but when we're thinking specifically about human trafficking and the more extreme forms of exploitation that fall under this um, so-called modern slavery umbrella. Um I think there's I think there's a few key things that really, really cannot be drawn out enough. And the first is that this is a field that is absolutely riddled with myths and um, you know, really kind of sweeping generalizations and very dubious um, statistics and claims. So I guess my first point would be it's very, very, very important to engage critically in this area. Um, In fact, what we're dealing with under this trafficking or modern slavery umbrella is really, really complex and contested territory. And um, there's lots of very distinct issues that fall under that, that have some commonalities but require quite different approaches to analysis and responses. Um, So some of the work we're doing at the moment uh, with the support of the National Crime Agency has been looking at um, patterns in referrals to the UK's uh, national referral mechanism. So that's the formal process by which people are officially identified or not as suspected victims of modern slavery. And you see in there just such wildly that different issues that it, it cannot be that the same response would be effective in terms of, for example, trafficking of British children within the UK for sexual exploitation or trafficking for uh, county lines related criminalization, um, sorry, criminal exploitation versus uh, trafficking of Albanian women to Italy for sexual exploitation who then come to the attention in the UK. I mean, these are very, very different issues. Um, So thinking that a one size fits all approach will work, I think is dangerous. Um, The other thing is this is a very, very politicised area and there are a lot of um, hidden interests and hidden agendas. Um, I think probably the most salient and obvious right now is this morning, uh, Emily Dugan reported in The Guardian that the... um, the government has moved modern slavery from the portfolio of the safeguarding minister into the portfolio of a minister for illegal immigration and asylum. And that tells you a lot about the political priorities and how those interact with responses. It's also something that I think is terrifying in terms of uh, how dangerous and how misguided it is based on the evidence we know about these issues. And that's for several reasons. Firstly, because um, these are issues that extreme exploitation causes very, very serious harms. There's very good evidence from the public health field on that often affects uh, already very marginalized people. And then this assumption that it can be tied up neatly with irregular migration is really misguided because, again, it ignores the fact that we know that a lot of the exploitation identified in the UK, and there are biases in that identification process, but a lot of it ties up with the exploitation of British nationals, particularly British children. So, again, putting it under... So called illegal immigration really ignores that. We also know there's a lot of exploitation, for example, various forms of labour exploitation involving EU nationals who came into the UK voluntarily through regular channels, but were deceived about uh, the prospects awaiting them and then subject to oftentimes really horrendous exploitation. And again, that's a key thing to really stress here that when we look critically at the kind of constructions and the narratives and the political messaging around these issues that is not to say that there are not very real and serious harms because there are and that's that you know that deserves a sensible informed evidence-based approach that recognizes this complexity that disaggregates very distinct issues and that puts far more of a premium than has been the case to date on addressing various knowledge gaps, including around evaluation. So very, very little is known about what's effective in tackling trafficking and exploitation, despite the fact that there's been enormous amounts of spending in this area, since, um, particularly since the 2000s onwards. Um, and also particularly concerning, there's a lot of spending, not only without evidence to know that it's necessarily effective, but with a growing body of evidence to suggest that anti-trafficking interventions can actually have some very dangerous uh, consequences for already marginalized groups, either in terms of unintended consequences or issues that were predictable and predicted, but yet kind of swiped to the sides in the interest of a broader agenda. So obvious examples there, for example, are the way anti-trafficking has often harmed sex workers, for example, or irregular migrants. Um, so, yeah, I guess that's a sort of brief summary of some of the things I see as being the key issues here. And um, I will
1: hand over to the others. Thank you very much, Ella. That was, yes, very intense, also quite depressing. But I suppose that's part of, uh, of what we do. But, yeah, highlighting some really important issues around um exploitation, modern slavery as is um, in the UK at the moment. Francesco, would you like to add your voice or your experience or your overview of of how you see organised crime in in the UK today?
0: Yeah, I might not have a terrific amount um, to say perhaps directly to that, but I thought it might be quite helpful to talk about my experience when I was reporting um, uh, The Missing Persons book, um, which was a years long project, um, which I started off with a few um, assumptions that were probably quite quickly, and pretty thoroughly debunked um I'd started that journey for want of a better word um with certain things in mind um trying to explain this apparent crisis um and these enormous numbers of people going missing every year, of course likely a significant underestimate um I was interested in the way that the figures were recorded and um the sort of very very lively and unreconciled and un- an unending debate going on within various um between various agencies and various bodies about these numbers in the first place. I thought, you know, I came in with my sort of uh, journalist um, being interested in social issues hat on. Um, I knew I had something or or suspected I had something to do with, you know, terrifying cuts in services that left people more vulnerable. You know, the safety net being emaciated down to something of a trapeze wire over the last 10, 12, perhaps more years. And the story got much more complicated the more I sort of drilled down into it Um, and of course rubbed up against um several things several uh things to do with criminality and organized crime within the UK particularly county lines um I can't pretend to be a trailblazer in making that connection between county lines and missing and there's some terrific reporting done by a colleague of mine Max Daly um which served as a bit of a template and I tried to drill down into that um and also uh, to speak to Ella's point as well. Um, sort of, I think it's important to, have, to deal with these things critically. Um, you know, and the more I drilled down, the more these, even the numbers, this, supposed suppose, of 180,000, or at least that's what it was in 2019 when I started my reporting, there'll be a report missing every year. Um, On interrogation, those numbers seem a bit um, porous. <laughs> and uh, yeah, the more I drilled down, the more complicated the picture became. Um, so county lines, you know, human trafficking was a was an enormous part of that reporting. Um, to my shame, I wish I I would love to go far, far deeper into that um, link, and I'm hoping to do so in the coming months, actually. But I can't talk too much about that at the moment. Um, and after that, so beyond missing, I also um, broadly write about crime uh, within the UK. I'm I'm interested in the sort of in representations of crime. I'm interested in um, the actual subject of crime reporting. I think it's fascinating, Um, the ways it's good and bad and very often bad. Um, I'm interested in getting around the UK quite a bit to, um, without sounding like a total cliche, um, uncover some stories perhaps that aren't just in major cities um, or perhaps even cities that aren't that well reported in the press nationally um again i would love to draw into examples but i can't say <laughs> a lot about certain things I actually working with Felia on a few stories um which i are very excited about um yeah i mean what i would say from a reporter's perspective as well is that um it's been an interesting process for me to try and um there's an interesting work we're going on in america at the moment about um journalistic practice to do the crime reporting and uh disentangling from sort of just using police sources etc and trying to sort of widen the net and something very interested in yeah and just embracing the sort of complexity of that picture and um if you're interested in social issues in the uk you can't then ignore crime because these things are so intrinsically linked um hopefully i have something more interesting to say when the uh, discussion opens up but um thank you
1: Thank you very much for that um, reflection about the report, the the approach of coming um, from a reporter's perspective. So, the three kind of different overviews that you've presented if i can if i can ask a question and open it up and and perhaps i don't know whether um at the same time uh, stan or ella have got questions to each other or, or to francesco but it's the idea of on the one hand recruitment and on the other i suppose the conditions or the the conditions that make people vulnerable in other words are we in a situation today in the uk where we have certain mechanisms that are um, taking place or, or, or working out where there is a community of vulnerability or co- a community that is becoming vulnerable and open to to being recruited. Uh, or being caught up in in various things, that means that they end up as potential either members of or victims to uh, organized crime. Um, so if you could just perhaps reflect uh, uh, around the notion of, of recruitment. I mean, Ella, you also talked and mentioned the idea of, you know, modern slavery being seen very much as, to a certain extent, this idea that it's somewhere else, or it's just other uh, ethnicities and other groups. And I was just wondering, again, from your work, whether we could just reflect about recruitment and the conditions that exist in, in today's society and then perhaps we can also then talk and, and deal with the idea of um all this being kind of politicized but what about generally in the local communities what kind of conditions are making people vulnerable what's going on in terms of young people getting caught up or even middle-aged people getting caught up in, in these activities i don't know whether uh, you have any reflections about that stan or, or, or ella i'm very happy to
2: to kick off just listening to uh to what's been said there and, and you know specifically ella's points around the the drift that we see um it's a it's a very common feature of organized crime and it is the kind of securitization agenda that that runs alongside it um and there's always an interplay and we're perhaps seeing some of that in practice now within within your sphere ella um in terms of you know vulnerability failure around you know what's making people vulnerable, we know for research and it's um, you know decades and decades old now the, you know, the way that organized crime works um, when uh, local um, you know when, when, when local practice doesn't support individuals from like, you know, the state's perspective, then they start taking care of their own business. Uh, and I guess there's an issue at the moment around kind of multiple and layered vulnerabilities. We've had COVID uh, and what that's done to communities. We've got issues uh, that we all know about around um, global security and and, and around uh, kind of cost of living. Um, you know, issues reported uh, pretty regularly around access to justice, access to health, access to education, etc. So... All of those access issues, I think, come together in different ways for different population groups. Um, and they uh, have the, uh, the, the ability to exclude people in different ways. And it's that exclusion that makes for vulnerability because something fills that gap where people have a need, uh, they seek uh, a mechanism to fulfill that need or others uh seek ways that they can flood into that vacuum. Um and we start to see uh informal uh ways for things to be resolved. Um and you know that's that kind of extra legal governance that kind of organized crime um you know comes in to fill the gap. Uh so I think we're in we're in a particular state of uh of vulnerability at the moment just because of all those layered Uh, issues. uh, But there's also an opportunity for us to do something about it by working much more closely together. And and I'm sure Ella's going to have a lot to say about this, about how we could work together more effectively. Because when you start to look at some of the processes that are in place, they're not always as joined up as they need to be. So I think working together effectively identifying uh, need uh, and where the system excludes uh, and building that um, that resilience uh, within public services, but within communities as well, is uh, a kind of necessary feature. And to the point of, you know, the framing of the dialogue around crime, uh, again, we've seen changes in that framing uh, that have happened over the, well, with intensity, I would say, over the last five years. Um, and we need to be thinking about that. That's why we're I'm really... Uh, pleased to hear uh, Francisco mentioning it, um, because it, it, when you when you frame crime and organised crime in a in a way that points towards a securitisation agenda, then you start to have mindful interventions that, pro- that produce um, inequality and that produce exclusion, and we we have to be guarded against that. We have to make sure that we uh, are alert to that uh, as it's happening. Um, That's my, my throw-in. I I don't know what.
1: Can I can I just ask you a question in relation to that? Then, Stan, from your perspective, would you say that? I don't know. I'm going to put you on the spot. Whether organised crime, you feel, is is actually a priority in the police force at the moment, or is it not prioritised, or is it unpackaged in a way that you know we make it into different forms of crime rather than a general idea of organised crime? Because obviously, organised crime is 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 so complicated, and and as as Ella mentioned, also sort of you know myths and stereotypes are easily put with that. But do you find that you know the framing of it is is organised crime something that the police is in interested in or is it kind of we've just got so many other things going on that we're not kind of necessarily prioritizing our understanding towards it?
2: And I feel that police and, and law enforcement more generally in the UK are very focused on organized crime um, at a very kind of local level uh, and there, there 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 is resources looking at it at a kind of transnational level as well um, but it is um, as kind of Elle has mentioned it is difficult to retain a focus um, on what what to do about it when there is a stretch. Um, So I I think we're always at risk of being pulled in too many different directions. Um, But that is the nature of organized crime. It's it's not one thing. Uh, It's a vast number of different things. Um, But that's why we take the approach of kind of risk factors and being focused on them rather than on how necessarily it plays out, um, because it plays out in so many different ways, born from the very same familiar risk factors. You know, we know where crime and organised crime ends. You know, it ends in the kind of despair that uh, that we that we read about it that we see uh, often begins, uh, generally begins in those adverse experiences within a kind of somebody's life journey. It's how those things come together in the middle that that are much more complex. Uh, But if we can focus on early prevention of of building systems that identify need um, to prevent vulnerabilities from growing, then uh, that in my view is the way that we can tackle this without being drawn into um, specific areas, specific commodities, specific thematics. uh, and, and to do a much better job of pulling the system together for prevention.
1: Thank you, Ella. Can you can you also talk to the idea of you know how how or perhaps explain to us a bit around your research in terms of how young people perhaps get caught up in in human trafficking and what that looks like from from your specific research? Because it's I wouldn't say sexy, but we talk a lot about human trafficking, and as you pointed out, and I agree, we don't actually know what that looks like or what it actually means, and it means a lot of pe- a lot of different things to different people. So I just wish whether whether you could just perhaps you know give us your overview of what human trafficking in the uk looks like and again as you say there's also a kind of quite um a kind of a push to identify and accept that actually there are a lot of British victims to human trafficking, and it's not just women, as you say, Albanian women who've been trafficked to Italy and who end up in the UK. Obviously, that is a quite there is that pool of women, but also understand that you know British children are also part of that vulnerability and part of... So if you could just give us an overview, a better understanding of your research and your findings around that, I think it'd be very interesting. Um,
3: yeah, sure. So... <laughs> I'm sorry to be that person over and over it really depends um I guess what what maybe makes trafficking a little different from some of the other areas is there's a sort of dual process of recruit recruitment or involvement whichever way you look at it in that there's an involvement as an offender and then there's also a kind of recruitment and involvement as someone who's being exploited so you know, offend a victim, so to speak. And there's a real tendency to kind of oversimplify both of those and frame it as these kind of super organised criminal masterminds on the offending side and then kind of very, very kind of idealised versions of victimhoods that real people can't often live up to because no one could. Um, and in reality it all gets a lot more messy and one thing that we see quite a lot in trafficking is this sort of interplay between offending and victimization and that then presenting really really fundamental challenges for responses and I I don't think there's necessarily any easy answers at all. Um, I think it's an issue that doesn't get nearly enough attention because because it is so important and it's so challenging from the perspective of you know what do you do if you have someone who themselves has been heavily exploited, but is also kind of grooming or exploiting or um, contributing to harms against others. And that's particularly challenging when you're dealing with children, but it's also very, very challenging when you're dealing with adults. Um, so, I, I mean, there's, there's been huge research gaps around offenders. Uh, funnily enough, in the trafficking field. So it's an area that there's comparatively little which is known about. There's some really good new work from uh, Rose Broad and Dave Gadd at Manchester where they interviewed modern slavery offenders in prison. And again, very much echoing some of the things we've found around uh, child sexual exploitation and around labour trafficking, um, that this kind of hyper-organised criminal masterminds thing just doesn't really hold up to scrutiny. And things like opportunism often play much more of a role. And also recognizing, and I think this probably resonates very much with what Stan was saying about how just because people do horrible things, it doesn't mean that they haven't also been through horrible things. And this isn't me trying to justify harms in any way, shape, or form, because the harms are very real. But recognizing that, you know, oftentimes you are dealing with people who've had pretty rubbish run of it themselves as well and that's then so yeah no no easy answers I'm a big fan of starting to think more in terms of a kind of public health type model and actually paying attention to prevention because there's been a lot of lip service around prevention over the years and oftentimes you find that you know the things that are framed as prevention are really just awareness raising and it's not necessarily actually going to help if you're not kind of offering better alternatives and exit ramps and the support that's needed like francisco francisco um I I think the decimation of public services plays an important role, I don't think it plays the only role and I think kind of, when people do explain it in that terms as if it's all down to that I think that's a bit simplistic as well. Um, yeah. We we need to look a lot more at kind of how harms concentrate. You see that around missing, for example, missing children. Oftentimes it's a relatively small proportion of children that are going, you know, contributing for a very, very large amount of missing incidents. Those are the type of instances where I would be particularly concerned about exploitation risks, not to say that there aren't risks elsewhere as well. But yeah, looking at those kind of concentrations and patterns, but also understanding. What we are seeing and what we're not seeing, and some of the reasons that might be the case. Yeah. Um. Thank you. I
1: thought that was really, really helpful and really interesting. And I I totally agree with you. I think that there is an oversimplification around what um, organised crime is or what it actually looks like. And I don't know how we unpack that in the terms of, you know, we can accept that it's contentious. Definitions are contentious. We don't all agree on the same kind of definition. But when you actually go and look at reality, there's very little organisation. There's a very, there's a lot of opportunism. There's a lot of survival strategies at play. And I think that that we don't really kind of engage with that we sort of talk about organized crime as it's like a golden standard and everybody knows what we mean by it but actually if you're looking at what's going on in the street especially in the UK a lot of them are not really organized and a lot of them yeah also have their own trauma have their own kind of uh, journeys and also as I think I think an important point that you make is we don't acknowledge the the kind of complicated relationship that offenders and um uh, victims have and that a victim can be a perpetrator and vice versa and we still haven't really got to grips with that and we don't really understand what that's how that works out so i think yeah there are a lot of issues um and and the narratives the established narratives are very difficult to unpack um Francesco have you got anything that you would like to add uh, to what you've just heard
0: yeah certainly i think um i can only speak for what i see um Particularly on through my sources, who I tried to stick with for a long time, who have known for a long time, who are involved in, um, I suppose, what we call criminality, and maybe have been for a long time. Um, I'm interested about vulnerability because it's such a uh, it's such a complicated <laughs> term. I when so when I you know talk to people um, and try and talk to them about their lives and the histories of um, well, just their own personal histories. And perhaps, you know, they wouldn't, A, A very rarely, uh, I'm talking about people on sort of street level, particularly in some of the major cities in the UK, um, they don't really see themselves as vulnerable. Um, although perhaps they are really, I don't. I mean, in some cases, they're certainly vulnerable to violence, they're certainly vulnerable to the sort of general travails of being on road or being on the street or whatever you want to call it. Um, do they see did they see themselves being recruited when they were teenagers again probably not it's probably quite there was no sort of um you know student union recruitment fair where you get sort of brought into your local i suppose what you would call a gang i don't know they you know it's got all got, they, they might see it, they do not even see it as a gang they might see it as something completely more completely different to that um so yeah a lot of these people that I know a lot of people again I've worked with for many years um and know fairly well uh it's it's not something static, their um their status, the way they actually live. They actually, some people, um it's probably a, I don't know if it's a helpful way of talking about it, but they sort of pinball in and out of what you call criminality. There are lots of periods where, or periods where they're not involved. You know, they're, they're doing something else with their lives and then something will, will occur. Perhaps you would call that a vulnerability opening up in their life, maybe. And they're dragged back into doing whatever they were doing before. So it's fluid. It doesn't really stay static. It's not... Again, it's not you can't um these aren't characters in a <laughs> in a in a novel or something. They're not they're not written characters. They're actually people with <laughs> three dimensional people with um complicated lives often as we all have complications to our lives, but they've got you know, they they it's not and their self perception isn't quite um well, they probably, some of them are frank about the fact that they're involved in criminality. Um but they don't perceive themselves as being sort of organised criminals or like part of this, um, <laughs> you know, it's it's sort of, um, it'd be ludicrous to them, to them, if I started coming out with that to them, they would just think that's funny, to be honest. Um, some of them also, I think about this fluidity, I mean, that also involves being in and out of the criminal justice system. Um, and I, some of my work that I'm trying to sort of build on now is people um, people who, were perhaps committed quite serious criminality in their teenagers, um, in some cases quite high profile crimes, who've been in the criminal justice system for a long time and basically missed their entire adolescence and, and early adulthood and are coming out now and and um emerging into a very different world and not just in terms of services, but in terms of how do I put it, the uh a vastly a vastly altered society in so many different ways. So I find that ex- that's an extremely interesting and um and quite underreported. Um Thing at the moment so that's something I'm interested in also um as I said about harm um I've just finished working on a another project about missing people and this notion of um I'm not can I, I think I can say this I think it's fine but this new body of research been published by missing people um and instances of harm with missing being much higher than is recorded in other statistics but then you know what does that harm entail again that's a very complicated very um ambiguous term that could mean so many different things so um yeah anyway i'll stop there before i ramble too much but i yeah i try and stay with these sources for a long time and i think a lot of what gets lost maybe is the fact that like you know these are people navigating broken com- a complicated world
1: thank you thank you thank you francesco so so um if, if we if uh, as i said i think one, one of the issues is is one of the issues is around <clears throat> The, the complex nature of victims and um offenders may maybe being the same people and overlapping and, and trying to sort of um, survive in certain contexts and we don't actually necessarily see them. Um, another question obviously is um, being very clear on how we're defining different types of phenomena. I mean one of the questions I can see coming up and I'll ask it in a bit, in a bit is around how we differentiate from these different forms of organised crime right. So organised crime is a very general term that we use and that there's obviously differences with street gangs or youth gangs, <coughs> organised crime, crime families and all mix everything together and we don't really have a clear picture we're reflecting i think at the lower level of the street level of the level of vulnerabilities and harms that are produced and how people then get caught up in in crime um, and how they try and survive so i suppose the the question i want to ask now is is in relation to if we have if we um if we acknowledge that our society is a society where there is a problem such as organized crime there are two questions i really want to ask which are slightly Unconnected. So I'll go with the first one, which is around uh, Stan obviously pushes very much for a public health approach and around prevention and all the problems that that actually kind of um, produces in terms of how do we manage as multi-agency approaches or how do agencies manage to come together to tackle this problem if we still don't really know what we're looking at. Um, I suppose. And I I think, you know, I, I acknowledge when you say, Stan, that, you know, local police forces know what they're looking at. But if we don't really have a clear idea of whether it's, you know, is it a vulnerability? Is it human trafficking? Is it drug dealing? What is it? How can how can services come together? to have a, a kind of a clear strategy. And, and, and from some of the stuff that I've been doing, I can clearly see that it's very difficult for them to come together because we don't know, and I don't want to say the enemy, but we don't know what the problem is or we have difficulties. Everybody looks at it differently and comes from a different perspective. So we're all defining things differently. I don't know whether that makes sense as, as a question, Stan.
2: Oh Well, let, let me try and make sense of it. <laughs> um, <clears throat> I think one of the issues that we have is that when you put crime in any sentence then um, people relax and think well that's fine that's a job for the police um, and when you talk about organized crime you're right it means different things to everyone I think the general perception for many is that it means mafias which is you know a, a facet of organized crime rather than crimes that are organized um, so I that's why I take the approach that we need to worry less about all of that and more about the vulnerabilities that Francisco has been mentioning. So, um, you know, people on a life course through the criminal justice system, when you look at the characteristics of those that are engaged with justice services, there are very common threads that run through those uh, people engaged with justice. And those are some of the risk factors that I mentioned earlier. Uh, And tackling those risk factors um, is a priority for all agencies. So, when you're talking about, um, again, back, back to the risk factors that were mentioned in the in the Campbell study around risk factors for recruitment into organized crime. Um, same risk factors that you see everywhere, they're just framed in different ways. So they talked about low educational attainment. In other areas, you know, the discussion will be around low IQ. Um, <clears throat> they talked about um, self-control, probably one of the biggest researched uh, areas in criminology around involvement in crime. Uh, others might call that impulsivity. Um, But when you start looking at the characteristics of people that are caught in to these systems, you'll often find issues um, that, you know, emanate from their kind of disrupted lives. And both Ella and Francisco kind of mentioned what that might look like for people. So impulsivity may be a feature. Um, if, If you don't have a lot in your life, you might make some very impulsive choices to grab anything that comes along that looks like it might make you better. Now, whether that's a meal or a drink or you know a piece of clothing or a friend, um, we we know from research that people that have very little uh, find it more difficult to kind of turn their back on things when they're presented to them. I've just seen Simon's comment pop up, and that was maybe my next point. When you look at characteristics of those caught up in justice services, there are huge neurodiverse and neurodisabling conditions that uh, that are very prevalent. Um, so the people that you're talking to Francisco, I would have thought um, there would be a lots of undiagnosed neurodiverse neurodisabling issues there because they are so prevalent in uh, injustice involved individuals. Uh, so brain injuries, uh, speech language and communication problems, etc. So when we're looking at self-control or impulsivity, um, we know that there are various neurodisabling conditions that make people, more likely to be easily led, i.e. have poor self-control, i.e. be impulsive. We know that there are cognitive impairments that produce um, issues for people within education, et cetera, et cetera. So there are a vast array of issues that are common to health, education, social care, and policing. And that's why I think we need to be framing uh, the support, the interventions that are needed in those terms rather than in terms of crime. Um, because as I said before I'll say again as soon as you mention crime everyone turns their back and says well that's fine the police will deal with that but we know the issues are much broader than ones that the police can resolve
1: Thank you Ella have you got any thoughts about that in terms of not looking at it necessarily as groups but looking more obviously um, the vulnerabilities or the or the conditions that create vulnerabilities and, and make people vulnerable to then have you know, to make decisions in certain contexts, which obviously then end up in some form of kind of criminality.
3: Yeah, I think I think it's really important to be really careful about the potential for stigmatisation as well when we talk about some of these things. And I'm, I'm all for evidence, you know, collecting better evidence and evidence-informed approaches. I think we also need to think about, you know, issues built into systems and i don't know um i i i honestly i i don't know dan's area enough to be able to comment sensibly on the stuff he was saying um but some of it made me really uncomfortable listening to it and it's something i'd like to hear more about and discuss more but i i think and I, I, I don't. From everything he said so far, I don't think this is an intent thing to, for it to sound, for it to sound really stigmatizing. But I, I do, I do worry about this idea that, like, all well, criminals, it's low IQ. It feels, it, it, and and maybe at this point you you want a chance to respond, Stan. It it.
2: To, not you know, familiar this, with this
3: field sitting here it just felt yeah. really eugenicsy to me which i don't think is your intention but it well,
2: I, let me, however let me, this stuff let me is done
3: my god we've got to be careful yeah
2: let let me repeat what i said at the start it's a systemic issue it is not an issue of individuals so if people don't get the support they need to remain in full-time education and come out with a good quality of education that's a systemic issue uh, but often it's, as you point out, it, it's a kind of victim blaming or an individual stigmatising issue. Mm-hmm. And we know there's a social gradient to all of that as well. We know that you know, children from poor families are more likely to be diagnosed with a behavioural problem than with a special educational need. And well, we know what happens after that as well, when they are expelled from school and then they end up on the street going missing and being picked up by organised crime. We We know all this from the research. So my point isn't, to stigmatize people, it's to draw attention to the systemic failures because nobody is vulnerable unless they don't have access to the support they need to keep themselves safe. So whether you've got a neurodisability or, or a neurodivergent condition that produces some problems for kind of mainstream uh, public service or not, it's the service that uh, that fails you. Uh, it's the it's the lack of provision of the kind of support that you need to thrive that's the problem. Uh, there's nothing inherently problematic with individuals. So I'm fully aware of uh, the possibility of stigmatisation. But when you look at all of the research, when you look at risk factors for involvement in criminal justice, they're all the same and they have been for decades. And those risk factors are things that are problems for the system. And, yeah. and issues that the system need to deal with rather than the issues for kind of blaming individuals yeah. for the kind of circumstances they find themselves in.
3: Thanks for uh, thanks for responding like that. That's helpful. Um, I guess the, the that was my sort of gut reaction to some of those points I had. Beyond that, I think one thing that is routinely overlooked in the area of crime is the importance of opportunity. So there's a, you know, really kind of growing, growing body of research showing that crime, people are not, you know, like people are not inherently criminal, people probably vary in their propensity to commit crime. But one of the factors that then interacts with, you know, propensity is the environment you're operating in. So and a lot of interventions are focused on this kind of person that's criminal things. So there's a lot of value in also looking beyond that and looking at the opportunity structures that help produce crime, both in terms of the kind of immediate physical and social environments, and also looking at the broader kind of structures and systems. So in trafficking, for example, um, one of those you know, structures you would want to be thinking about is uh, immigration policy and opportunities to travel safely and legally, you'd want to be thinking of things like labor market enforcement, Um, And so, yes, I think the opportunity side gets forgotten a lot. And I think that's a real missed opportunity. Um, Sorry, that wasn't meant to be a bad joke. (laughs) And then um, the other thing I think that's really worth underlining is that in terms of responses, not all responses need to come from the state. And this is not me saying that there is, you know, I think there's absolutely a role for policing when we're talking about, you know, high harm issues. I worked for a long time on child sexual exploitation. I I'm happy the, the kind of cases I worked on, I'm happy to see these uh, the people involved prosecuted. I'm not suggesting getting rid of that but I think there's an over-reliance on policing and I think there's part of that is like Stan said I think it's involving other agencies for example public health agencies education etc but part of it is also looking beyond the structures of the state and thinking about other ways of addressing the situations that render people susceptible to exploitation or put them in situations where they need to do things in order to get by where it's the least worst option available. So, for example, again, returning to my area of expertise, here, really, really obvious examples are the labour rights movement. Um, So, you know, low-paid workers organising, people working in on... uh, names so, but, you know deliveroo uber eats like workers there are organizing and that is a bottom up mobilization to try and improve conditions very similar what you see around the sex workers rights movement globally which is very much kind of you know grown and grown and that's about saying you know it's not it's not rescue it's not state intervention that we're after it's about being recognized as workers and being able to work safely and to organize together to improve our material conditions so I guess my sort of that would be an extra sort of missing piece of the puzzle for me is this assumption and you see it as well around child sexual exploitation this huge amounts of money goes into policing policing it properly is very important don't get me wrong but neglect of you know um, grassroots services neglected services that specialize around um Children from minoritized backgrounds and those kind of non-state interventions that can be hugely, hugely valuable and are often forgotten about and underfunded.
1: Thank you, thank you. That's very helpful and uh, interesting to sort of counterbalance, as you say, the the policing kind of discourse. Francesca, have you got anything else to add before I start looking at some of the questions that have appeared? Um, um in terms,
0: yeah.
1: yeah. In terms of also in terms of missing gap or what we don't know of what we do know, and also who. Who, not whose fight is it, but, you know, if the state is is weak or not really resilient enough and policing can't do it on their own, how do we kind of create an alternative sort of uh, social capital, if you want? How, how do we create that when we're obviously also, this, you know, not necessarily in a great place economically as a society?
0: I might have to come back to that. That's going to require a bit more thought than I can muster right now. But I was going to actually want to say, to pick up on what Ella just said, the thing I hear a lot from people... Um, uh, one of the biggest things is housing, <laughs> I hear an awful lot about that, because um, uh, uh, yeah I hear about that in London, in Glasgow and wherever there's pressure really, of course pressure all over the UK, but where it's particularly acute, um, you hear that's a huge driver of um, precarity and precarity that leads to opportunities for, for crime, um, I just wanted to add that, sorry because it's something that just, I was working on earlier today and <laughs> popped into my head, uh, the missing question is a good one, I'm sorry I... I I wish I had a fully formed answer on the top on the balls of my feet, but I don't. That's a very good question. (laughs) So I'll come back to that.
1: Okay. Um, Is there anything else that uh, either Ella or or Stan want to to add to what they've said? If not, um, I I am interested and maybe it's not the right forum to go about how um, Ella's pointed out the shift um, with the new government looking at... Uh, changing certain forms of legislation or certain issues into different forms in particular Um, and maybe you can comment on this Ella, the idea that we're moving away from safeguarding into, into kind of illegal immigration and asylum uh uh, laws I think that's quite an interesting shift if you want um and a a different nuance of of the problem um I don't know whether you want to comment further I know I know you've you've made a comment about that but I think it's it's an interesting shift and 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 I know that Stan talked about securitization if you want of of these issues but that seems to be where we're going more and more rather than you know prevention and bottom-up kind of care um would would you would like to add something about that that particular shift
3: yeah I mean Um,
1: slavery sorry
3: Another huge development this year was the enactment of the um, Nationalities and Borders Act which essentially breaks with international refugee law and seeks to criminalize people based on their method of arrival in this country um, and again I think it I think it points to us heading in a very very scary direction and it's very important to Inform ourselves and organize and resist around these things. Um, I think it also kind of intersects with some of the things that Francisco's been saying, also what Stan's been saying around securitization, like 100%. I mean, this is classic here. Um, but with France, what Francesco is saying around um, responsible reporting, I mean, we have a really, really, um, we have a very interesting press situation in the UK like there's, there's a lot of um a lot of you know right-wing press owned by very rich individuals who have very strong interests in issues being framed in a certain way because it fits with broader kind of aspirations and goals and you see this you see this in you know coverage in daily mail and the times and the telegraph i'm just going to list off titles until no one wants to talk to me ever again um but no but i mean this idea that you know that um Asylum seekers are all criminals, they're all you know, coming to destroy the British state and British values. I mean, there's grotesque na- narratives that put out there to the point. I mean, we did some work earlier this year around the war in Ukraine and the associated um, risks in terms of trafficking and exploitation. And one of the key arguments that came out of that, and that was an evidence based roundtable with you know, over 100 experts participated, lots of different backgrounds, thinking about where the risks lay. One of the key arguments was that the visa system was in itself creating an exacerbating risk. And that visa system can be seen as a product of the UK's fixation with the hostile environment and kind of migration control. I then got asked to go on Times Radio to talk about this report. And one of the questions I was asked on it was, "Yeah, but you, you know, you're saying that one of the key recommendations is to get rid of visas for Ukrainians. But if we do that, surely you know all the terrorists are going to come in. And it, so there's these kind of these mad." like extreme scaremongering narratives that have built up and built up over the years and you see it as well in like another area I work a lot on which is child sexual exploitation and this really kind of concerted push over the last decade to frame child sexual exploitation as a Muslim problem and these are not kind of spontaneous developments there is a lot of kind of interests behind it and politics that they serve and I think we have to be enormously careful and there's a huge role for good critical reporting in the press as well and we should really celebrate the people that are doing that
1: and and so that's the, that's I suppose the last point I want to make before before i I, I go on to uh, some of the questions is the way that know and and we have Francesco here to to sort of perhaps answer the question but the idea that perhaps organized crime is now more and more used as a political instrument I know I did uh, my first one of my first lectures last week with my fourth years talking about stereotypes and Italian mafia and they were all very kind of very quick onto the idea of using stereotypes as political tools and how you kind of create the other and the fear of the other and I know that this has happened for a long time but now it seems as though everybody's coming together to do that and therefore maybe we're not only making organized crime a kind of space of making it into a security issue like we did a long time ago but also into a political tool to kind of i don't know whether it punish the, the punish the poor or punish whoever the political elite want to but is there perhaps that danger that you know organized crime as you say you know there are huge gaps of information that I think there's a lack of political priority about a lack of political interest in the whole different elements and dimensions of it but do you think that we we are coming to a point where more and more now um, we are going to use organised crime as as a vehicle for you know going and and, and punishing certain groups or certain ethnic communities or whatever uh, as a result of a political agenda I just I just want to maybe capture your your thoughts on that and then I'll get a a few questions because I know we're starting to out of time so i don't know whether stan or francesco you you might want to respond to that the idea that now in particular we can start to see that more and more stan
2: i think as ever um there is a risk in othering when the kind of narrative becomes as febrile as as it as it as it yeah has done and and possibly will do more of um you know we we see um we see changes in the way that you know items are discussed and matters are discussed um and those of us that have been around long enough or, or are researching this deeply enough can kind of feel the winds of change uh, blowing in in as in the kind of the wrong direction in some cases when we're when we're looking at doing things that don't have an evidence base now Ella's point at the start was that the kind of lack of an evidence base in this area and Again, you know, that's well reported in terms of organised crime. We don't really have a great evidence base around prevention, do we? Uh, And, you know, when we start to look at how do we prevent these things from happening, even if we do develop an evidence base, well, who's picking it up? You know, who's working on that evidence base and actually working alongside it to make it happen? Um, You know, there's there's a question if I can address in the chat it kind of speaks to this really, um, you know, around the kind of punitive nature of justice. It's not justice that's, it's not just justice that's punitive. Um, you know, everything, every public service uh, can be punitive, whether it's medicine or social care, um, you know, they all have a, a punitive edge, don't they? Um, now the criminal law, rather than justice itself, the criminal law's there to punish people. It's there to punish people for the non-typical behaviours that are deemed to be criminal. Um, But justice services are not necessarily there to do that. They're there to get the best outcomes, aren't they? Um, You know, the the kind of stated uh, aim of of youth justice services is to prevent criminalisation. So although the criminal law may be there to punish justice, certainly... That's not the main feature of it. The main feature is to get justice, and that doesn't always necessarily mean to punish people. But where the criminal law punishes non-typical behaviour, we have to ask ourselves why some people find it difficult to behave in non-typical ways. And this is to your point, Ella, again, around stigmatisation. That stigmatisation has happened and is happening, and we need to talk about it. So problematizing the issue to say, why are there so many people in prison? That have a brain injury because 70% of people in prison have a brain injury. Um, why are there so many people in prison that have a speech, language, and communication difficulty? Because 90 odd percent do. So the question is, why is this happening? The question isn't that it's happening because of those issues, it's happening because of the response to those issues. And that's the place we have to get to to say we have to understand why people find it difficult to behave in, in typical ways, yeah, ways that the that the criminal law frames behaviour. And then we have to understand why that means that many more of them are caught up in these situations where they're exploited uh, and criminalised, because that is happening and that has already happened. And that's the thing that we need to reverse. But we need to be very careful, uh, as you pointed out, on the narrative, because it's quite easy to take this narrative if you are so um, you know, uh, focused uh, and to pervert it for different reasons uh different outcomes so we have to maintain a kind of solid stance that um community resilience is uh is is vastly important and that public services have a great role to play in that uh and it is not simply a, a a job for the police to police our way out over these issues it's a job for us all uh to work together to have better outcomes
1: Francisco have you got something to add
0: uh, I suppose I just want to go back to Ella's point as well about the politicisation of crime reporting in the press. I mean, thats that's been going on for an awfully long time, I suppose, but there is a feeling, certainly, that's accelerated and and maybe gotten worse in the past, I don't know, how, how many years. Um, I think part of that, I mean, it, it's not right to hark back to a sort of fantasy golden age where, you know, the fully funded newsrooms, there was money sloshing around. That actually just meant, in some cases better funded bad journalism. That was the that was the, that was history of crime reporting in this country for a long time. But um I feel, you know, it's not well resourced, particularly good, particularly investigative reporting work or um or more in-depth um reporting that's actually seriously treating some of these these subjects. Um well it takes money and time and those are commodities that are in pretty short supply within British journalism and have been for quite a while. Um, how to remedy that i don't really know um you know i would love i would love to know but i guess there's always space for for good stuff good stuff is always produced how to improve the situation i mean i'm sure there are there must be a model that works i just don't just don't know it thank you
1: thank you i know that there are three or four questions on the chat um but um i'm I'm not sure some are directly necessarily relevant i will um Perhaps, um, I mean, there's there's a question about organ trafficking, but I'm not sure, Ella, whether you've got any information about organ trafficking in the UK um, or, um, yeah, that, that's one maybe you can come back to. Um, and then there's a, tr- there's a question, obviously, for you, Stan, about punitive. I think you might have co- covered it, the punitive nature of justice in this country. How challenging is it for you to take a public health approach when you're trying to uh, tackle serious uh, organised crime? um i think that's yeah i mean there are a couple of others but they're more specifically around um more specific kind of case studies and 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 sort of general um so i don't know what i'd like to do because we've only got about five minutes left perhaps uh, if you could think about the question so punitive justice as a as a as um as a practitioner stand whether it's easy for you to carry on uh, your public health approach um to your colleagues and to the policing world and ella about human trafficking around organ in particular organ trafficking but then at the same time if you could just sort of draw a a sort of again perhaps for our listeners an overview of what you think the situation i mean i know it's kind of quite depressing listening to you ella and i know exactly where you're coming from and i've had similar experiences about how you know we need to look at evidence and yet evidence is very difficult to find you know we need to do lots of ethnographic studies if you want to get anywhere because police data is is quite limited but what you know what can we do going forward and i know you've underlined already sort of the, some of the major problems but perhaps as a, as a kind of concluding remark you can think about whether there's any positives going forward so basically I I suppose I'm asking you to sort of wrap up some general thought around organized crime in the UK if you had to answer uh, an exam question or or, or a quiz question of you know what's the outlook like what is it kind of you know and and is there any kind of positive thing that we can do going forward in terms of academics or practitioners or journalists I know would you like to kick off yeah sorry I (laughs) I like really i am doom and gloom at the moment um I'm sorry I hope that's I've fine gone. that's fine don't worry about it it's, um, it's, it's, I think it, you reflect you know your evidence-based so that that's what it is um so
3: things things that give me hope um there are so many brilliant brilliant people out there working on these issues including people that have incredible lived experience that they're bringing to bear and they're asking to be you know listened to and taken seriously in ways that hasn't necessarily been the case to date including people that are doing huge amounts of grassroots organizing and people working in all sorts of different professions you know be it be it law be it policing be it um social care be it um academia journalists that are really kind of are critically engaging with these issues and are trying to think about what are better ways and pushing back against you know hype and simplification and the co-option of complex and very very serious issues to serve particular narratives so that gives me a huge amount of hope it also gives me lots of people that I could fire off um expletive filled whatsapp texts to when otherwise you would just be bashing your head against I'll leave you I'll, I'll ask you
1: to stop there with that positive otherwise you'll go back to <laughs> yeah. the and we've only got to yes positive that's my biggest positive yes well I think that's a good that's a good way to leave a good place to leave it Stan have you got anything else to sort of summarize or be positive about
2: well, I think building on that um, that grassroots uh, is an important feature and building the evidence base is uh, an important feature. Um, if you can point to an evidence base, then you're on the right journey, uh, even if policy and practice is taken a, a, in a different route. If you can always point to the evidence base, then you, you've you got a, a, a compass there, haven't you? Um, that lack of a substantive evidence base um you know one that we can subject to systematic review is a real kind of important area that we need to plug and it's an area that we in the vru are trying to you kind know, of do a lot about uh, how do you mobilize how do you implement how do you build an evidence base sufficient for um for a kind of evaluation so uh, that gives me hope that we'll keep building an evidence base regardless
1: good thank you and francesco apart from submitting your manuscript anything else positive
2: yeah going to the
0: pub later i think that's the positive note um but <laughs> the main the main positive thing honestly i work with so many amazing people in my line of work people i really respect and i'm extremely blessed to meet they're doing incredibly interesting um sensitively handled some brilliant bits of reportage and uh i mean to name a few i've already named max daly i think he does very good work on drugs um i'm familiar with kieran for part Kieran Fafar, who wrote a book called Cut Short about um, youth services and uh, um, youth violence. He's a youth worker in South London, but also a terrific writer. Um, yeah, I know lots of people I feel really inspired by, and um, yeah, they're doing fantastic work. So I guess, you know, if if, if you can take, if, it, if one can take some of that energy, you know, <laughs> you're doing well, I suppose. Um, but yeah, thank you so much. Jeez.
1: Thank you. Thank you, Francesco. Thank you very much to our three speakers. I'm, I'm getting the secretariat who are starting to send me messages about how many minutes we've got left. So I will stop there.
0: Thank you for listening to this episode of the OC24 podcast from the Global Initiative Against Transnational Organized Crime. This talk was just one of 85 from this year's 24 hour conference on global organized crime. To get access to the rest, head over to oc24.haysummit.com. Thanks for listening.